0: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis fired the data scientist in charge of the state's COVID-19 dashboard as cases rise in the state after it reopened. The CDC finally issues guidelines on opening that are acceptable to the White House, after all 50 states, to some degree, have begun to open already. Meanwhile, sources in the CDC say that they've been muzzled to put politics ahead of public health. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. At the beginning of this pandemic, there was a common refrain you'd hear about the collective experience of
1: COVID-19. We want to be staying at home as much as we possibly can, keeping that social distance. It's going to take all of us.
0: Because together you stand, divided you will fall.
1: We are all in this together, this world, connected through common experience and now a common mission.
0: That's a nice thought. But as the COVID-19 pandemic bears down on America, it's found a certain path. See... Disease is never born equally. It almost always follows a very familiar social gravity, hitting folks on the receiving end of America's inequality and marginalization hardest of all. It adds injury to insult. As we've discussed throughout this podcast, there are deep disparities in the experience of COVID-19. But as we talk about how COVID-19 has hit America, we too often forget the very first Americans. Indeed, COVID-19 has devastated Native American communities across the country.
2: On tribal lands, even here, social distancing can be hard to do. Native Americans have long suffered from inadequate health care, and they have higher rates of diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, and heart disease that can make COVID-19 infections even worse.
0: No community has been hit harder than Navajo Nation, which has the highest per capita infection rate in the U.S., even higher than New York the epicenter of COVID-19 in America. We spoke with Navajo National Counselor, Carl Slater, to understand why. Um, Tell me, how bad has COVID-19 been in Navajo Nation, and has it affected you personally?
1: So, as of this past Saturday, which is the last time we had an update from the Health Command Operations Center, there were 3,912 confirmed cases on Navajo, and the confirmed fatalities were up to 140. So the virus is spreading. I think luckily we've seen a reduction in the infection rate, thanks in part to these public health orders that have been issued by the nation. But on a per capita basis, I think we've eclipsed the New York City area in our infection rate.
0: And how many people uh, are we talking about total, uh, so that folks have a sense of um, of the the scope and breadth of this?
1: So there's about three hundred thirty to three hundred fifty thousand Navajo Nation tribal citizens. The Navajo Nation encompasses a little over twenty seven thousand square miles between three states: Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. And on the nation, there's about 175 to maybe 180,000 Navajos who live here, and the remainder live in off-reservation communities. So we have a, a population that's very diverse, um, but about a little over half of the Navajo Nation population lives on the reservation. And when we're reflecting these numbers, those are the people that we're including. Hmm.
0: And, you know, you, you talked about this eclipsing New York City. Um, what's the lived experience been like uh, on the, the nation? What, what, uh, what does it feel like day to day for you and your community?
1: I think the biggest thing is a disruption to, like, ordinary, like, social relations. So we have a kinship system grounded in, uh, which is our relations among all Really, living and non-living beings, but our kinship systems identify our relations, like within our community, within our family structures, and these orders to stay home have been like very disruptive to that um, normal, I'd say, operation of like our our social structure. So that's something that I I I've seen be very difficult. The ability to communicate with your family, to plant, to ranch, has been disrupted.
0: What? Why do you think it's been so devastating uh, on the nation? Um, why is is the outbreak in Navajo Nation uh, eclipsing New York City, which, you know, the, the story's been told about New York. We saw the images. Um why do you think it's it's affected uh, the navajo so so uh,
1: intensely? I think what's critical to understand is that the federal government has an obligation to Indian people that includes health care education, um, a variety of other services. So the Indian Health Service is the primary health care provider to our people on Navajo but The system as a whole across the entire United States was funded a little little over $6 billion this past year. The true need is over $38 billion across the Indian Health Service. So when it comes to being prepared for a potential epidemic or pandemic, the system as a whole is severely underfunded to address that. Luckily, through the CARES Act and other appropriations from Congress, the Navajo Area Indian Health Service has really received some supplemental appropriations that have been used to tighten up the system. And what about more broad disinvestments?
0: You know, we, um, we often point to the healthcare system, rightly so, um, but so much of what causes an epidemic and a virus like this to spread has a lot more to do with, you know, systemic poverty and the things that happen outside of healthcare system. Can you you speak to the ways in which um, that may have shaped uh, the spread of this virus in the community?
1: I think Navajo is fairly unique in terms of how the disease has spread relative to other areas in the United States. Um, We're not a very dense population. Like I said, 180,000 citizens spread over 27,000 square miles. When you've seen community transmission and that in the New York City area, it looks a lot different than on Navajo. On Navajo, we have a lot of intergenerational homes that are housing, you know, a grandparent, a parent, and then a grandchild. And there can be families within each one of those um, areas. When you send a person home who's suspected of COVID and they need to self-quarantine, there oftentimes isn't the space to accommodate that quarantine requirement. On top of that, you have almost 30% of our population that doesn't have access to running water or electricity, and CDC guidelines saying to wash your hands and not touch your face, follow all of these orders, it's very difficult when you don't have the actual material items to perform those duties. And a big priority of the council right now is funding those waterline extensions, those final mile extensions for our citizens. The Navajo Nation has historically been left out of these large scale Water, power, infrastructure projects to deliver what really should be the standard of living in the 21st century to our citizens.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share that with us and and to educate us on um, on what the challenges are and and what the opportunities look like and um, and to share your perspective from the community that you serve and uh, really just inspired by your leadership and your commitment to your people and. Um, I hope that we can be partners in that work, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, thanks for reaching out to Navajo.
0: Carl's interview highlights how our country's failure to meet its treaty obligations and to invest in Indian country has helped to set the stage for COVID-19's devastation in these communities. For a broader perspective, I reached out to Rebecca Nagel, a journalist and host of Crooked Media's This Land podcast. She's a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Our interview after the break. My guest is Rebecca Nagel. She is a journalist, and uh, she is the podcast host of This Land, which, if you haven't checked it out, is an incredible uh, Crooked Media podcast. And she is also a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Thank you so much for joining us today um, and helping us to understand the challenges that Native American folks are facing in COVID-19.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, Rebecca, you've done, first, uh, you know, some incredible work in terms of helping so many of us who, because of our privilege, don't have to talk about or think about the challenges that Native Americans face uh, even today. You've done a great job sort of sharing and transmitting uh, that experience. Can you speak to, you know, before this pandemic even struck, what are the contours of the Native American experience today? And how does that set us up? As you know, COVID nineteen comes barreling in.
2: Yeah. So, as citizens of um, Native Nations, we have a government-to-government relationship with the United States that was established through over three hundred treaties that the United States government signed with us. And um, with those treaties comes a trust obligation for the United States to fulfill you know, what it said it would do. And what we have is a really, really long history of those promises being broken and the legal obligation that the United States has to indigenous people falling really short. Um, and that has been felt most acutely during this pandemic and the lack of funding for the Indian Health Services. So and a lot of those treaties, um, you know, providing health care and taking care of tribal citizens was part of the deal in us giving up billions of acres of land. You know, we were also promised some things like education um, and obviously sovereignty over um, our remaining lands. But one of those things was health care. And Indian Health Services um, is actually one of the oldest federal health agencies. It predates Medicare and Medicaid, and it was set up as an answer to the United States treaty obligation uh, to provide health care for tribal citizens. So this is not a handout. It's um, in exchange um, for the land that we gave up. But since IHS was created, it has been woefully underfunded. Um, and because of that, we see um, really big health disparities Um in tribal nations. You know, people with lack of access to health care have higher rates of diabetes, hypertension and asthma, and all of the things that, you know, the CDC warns um, leads to higher rates of complications and even death with COVID. And so, you know, I was doing some reporting very, very early on in this crisis where Native leaders and Native health experts were sounding the alarm that, you know, once this hits Indian country, it's going to be really, really, really bad. Mm. And, you know, from the beginning, the federal response has been inadequate, and now we see that bearing out.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate you um, sharing that. It's really, really important context because you know throughout this podcast, um, I've I really tried to to shine a light on sometimes what's not seen uh, when we talk about pandemics. you know, and that's the fact that you know, it's easy to talk about a pathogen and that's always what we talk about, right? the coronavirus, this, the coronavirus, that. But we don't appreciate that um, there are characteristics of the host and the characteristics of the environment that really do shape pandemics a lot, a lot more uh, clearly uh, than um, than just the pathogen itself. And you know, you're you're talking about a, a community um, that has been systematically uh, uh, oppressed and marginalized, and um, you know, and who is. Uh, Obligations have not been met, Um, and I I really think it's critical for us to appreciate that—that that's, you know, these are about obligations that our federal government um, uh, entered into um, after, you know, centuries of of oppression, and it's still not meeting those uh, requirements. Um, How has COVID nineteen impacted uh, Native American communities, uh, and you know, definitely Navajo Nation? Uh, is is the 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 um, experience we keep hearing about a higher per capita rate uh, of covid nineteen uh, infection and death than any other um, entity in the country. How has this affected you know the social fabric and the experience in uh, Native American communities and and why?
2: Yeah, um I mean I think what's happening in the southwest um is where we've seen the worst impacts of the outbreak. So, um like you said, Navajo Nation um has a really high rate of infection and death. They also have a really high testing rate, um but that's not to uh you know, discount the crisis that's happening there. Um, there are also some other tribes in the Southwest. Um, there are some Pueblos that have had really, really high rates of infection as well. And when you look at the racial demographic data coming out of New Mexico and Arizona, um, you can see on a larger scale the hugely disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on Native Americans in the Southwest. Um, so, for example, in New Mexico, Native people make up only 11% of the state's population, but account for half of all COVID-19 related deaths. Um, And so, you know, it's it's really impacting those communities hard. It's really scary. Um, And then in terms of a national picture, um, it's actually kind of hard to bear that out, because while there is a... Racial disparity and how coronavirus is impacting different communities. For Native Americans, there's actually a data disparity. And so there's a real lack of national data adequately and accurately being collected about the impact of this in Indian country. So I did an article for The Guardian um, a few weeks ago, and it was about the time that states were starting to release racial demographic data after, you know, that first wave of racial demographic data showed a really big disproportionate impact, particularly in Black communities and also Latinx communities. And so under social pressure, states started um, releasing more data, and I found about 80% of states had been releasing data at that point, and over half didn't include a breakdown for Native people, almost universally categorizing us as other. And so even in places where there are high portions of Native population, so according to the U.S. Census, over half of all Native people in the United States live in just 10 states. And I found that four of those 10 states had put Native people in the other category. And then two urban centers, um, the two urban centers that have the highest number of Native people, which makes sense because they're also the two biggest cities in the United States, are L.A. and New York City. And they had both categorized Native people as other. And so, you know, we know... What what is happening in the Southwest, um, because those tribes are really leading the way and collecting that data. But I think particularly in places where, you know, a lot of Native people don't live on their reservation um, or within the boundaries of their tribal community. And so I think there are places across the country um, where Native COVID patients are just falling through the cracks.
0: Mm. So, you know, you're, you're painting a really bleak picture. It's like, we're only shining a light in a few places. And in those places where we're shining a light, we're seeing a huge disparity. But really, part of the the bigger story here is being missed because we're just not even shining a light. And um, it speaks to, you know, a broader failure uh, in our society that is increasingly data-driven that we only pay attention to what we measure. And when we don't measure, we don't pay attention. I've, you know, in, in connection to Native American communities... Um, another epidemic that we had been talking about well before this ever happened was the epidemic of violence and murder among uh, Native women. Can you speak to how, you know, the, the, our inability or maybe choice not to collect this information has broader impact than COVID-19?
2: Yeah, I mean, you see Native people left out of data and public health data all over the place. I mean, you know, you can see countless graphs from NIH, um, you know, that'll talk about like the disproportionate impact of diabetes of which native people have the highest rate and we're we're not on the graph. Um, you know, a really good example is, um, last January. So just a few months ago, the CDC released its most comprehensive data set to date on race and maternal mortality, and it didn't include native people. And in a separate study, um, the urban Indian health Institute, um, which is a tribal epidemiology center, um, they did their own study and they found that native women living in cities were four and a half times more likely to die during pregnancy and birth than white women. And so over and over again, um, we're not included in the data. And then what happens is that it's masking, um, a huge problem. And oftentimes when we're pulled out of that other category, You know, it it unveils a crisis, and and there there are more problems in the data collection happening with COVID than even just that other category. Um, You know, one other thing that's actually really common that multiple studies have found is that Native people are misclassified in medical records and even in death records. And so, um, you know, one study found that um, in Oregon that about half of Native patients had been misclassified in hospital discharge papers. Another study found that about a third of death records for Native people were wrong. And so Native COVID patients who are showing up to ERs um, and a doctor is just, or a nurse is just putting down their race based on appearance, um, they're probably being classified as the wrong race, because we're just not, um, people don't see us as existing. So (laughs) people don't assume, (laughs) assume that your race is native. Um, and we're also very mixed. So it's like, I, I pass as white, which comes with a lot of privilege, but, um, you know, a lot of native people, you know, native people might look Brown, native people might look white, native people might look black. And, um, if racial categorization is happening based on appearance, then all those tribal citizens aren't being counted, Um, the other thing that's happening is that IHS's reporting system is just has so many gaps in it that it's not, um, it's not able to paint a clear picture of what's going on. Um, and so you would think that, okay, you know, people who are going to a regular hospital, we can't track that, but we have this national healthcare system that has, you know, hospitals and healthcare facilities in 37 states, it would at least provide, a snapshot of what's going on. But they actually can't track rates of hospitalization and death because most IHS facilities are just primary care. And even places that have hospital beds often don't have, um, you know, more critical, you know, like they might not have, um, well, you probably know the term for it, but like a lung doctor. <laughs> Um, You know, like those more sophisticated things that we're we're treating, you know, critically ill people with. Um, So like a
0: a specialist that, you know, watches or or manages your, your chronic disease over a long period of time.
2: Exactly. And so a lot of COVID patients are actually being transferred and, and patients who are critically ill in general are actually transferred outside of the IHS. And the way the system is set up is that that data doesn't follow them. So once that patient leaves IHS mm. system, um, IHS doesn't know what happens or how they turn out. And the craziness of that too is that um IHS and tribes are still paying for those services at a different hospital through um contract health. So um there's just a lot of gaps in the data where I mean hopefully it can be corrected um but for the wave that you know we're in the middle of right now um there's there's no way that there's going to be an adequate or an accurate count of native people.
0: Yeah, that is um, that is frustrating and um, it speaks to, you know, two intersecting trends. A, the fact that, you know, as you said, uh, Native people are erased in the way that we collect data and we talk about communities and communities of color. And then B, uh, that our healthcare system is this, you know, patchwork mess that does not uh, well track an individual over their life. And that has really devastating circumstances, not just for the counting, but also for the care. Um, Because, you know, if you can't access a patient's medical records in a new hospital, that basically means you're blind to what happened to them. And yes, you know, patients can tell you what happened, but uh, particularly when you have somebody who has multiple chronic diseases or um, a a really difficult course, you you really want to know the details. Um, And when those details are missed, it, it can lead to worse care. We, we know that the physical consequences of COVID-19 are acute, but, you know, maybe from a healthcare perspective, the longer-term consequences are actually going to be the mental health consequences of COVID-19. Can you speak to what those acute mental health consequences have been, are, um, and then how equipped, if at all, uh, Indian country is to face the mental health consequences over the long term?
2: hmm Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's unique about our communities is that our elders hold um, a really important and sacred role. And so the impact of the loss of the elderly, um, I think bears out really different in Indian country, where not only are they family members and grandparents, um, but often also the people who carry our language or carry our ceremonial knowledge, um, and things like that that are irreplaceable. Um, I think there's also a lot of intergenerational trauma around disease. And so, um, you know, I mean, My tribe um, has had several times where, you know, large portions, up to half of our population, um, were wiped out to smallpox epidemics. Um, And even more recently, you know, the 1918 influenza epidemic had a really um, bad impact on some tribes. So I think there's also a lot of intergenerational trauma of thinking about, um, you know, the threat of this pandemic, Um, And we know that a lot of those mental health services um, were not adequate sort of before going into this pandemic. And that goes back to um, really the inadequate funding of IHS and other other programs um, to provide those things. So Um, you know, we've had a crisis, um, for years now of teen suicide and, um, our young people really struggling, um, with mental health. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I think what I see playing now is instead of tribes, you know, getting the resources that we need in this moment to face this crisis is, um, really having to fight fight tooth and nail, um, for just, you know, um, basic amounts of funding for these federal programs.
0: Hmm. And a lot of that goes back to counting, right? Because you don't pay for what you don't count. Um, can can you talk a little bit about the economic fallouts? Uh, we know that, um, the other side of this crisis is an economic crisis. And we know that communities that came into COVID-19, underserved and underemployed and underpaid will tend to come out of COVID-19 even more underserved and underpaid. Can, can you talk a little bit about what the consequences look like in Indian country economically?
2: Yeah. So I think that um, what's happening to tribal governments is a double whammy where um, a lot of times tribes are, you know, on the front lines of providing services to tribal citizens. So whether that's, you know, during this pandemic been like delivering food to the elderly, um, you know, setting up hotspots so that people can have access to the internet, um, you know, doing drive-through testing. And so at the same time that those tribal services have seen an increase in demand, um, tribal income has, uh, like a lot of parts of the economy come to a complete stop. So, um, our tribes actually aren't, we're, you know, we're one of the only governments that for the most part aren't allowed to tax. And so, Um, You know, for all of the negative stereotypes that exist about tribal casinos, um, you know, casinos and other industries that are based pretty heavily in like the hospitality and tourism industries um, are things that tribes rely on for that income so that we can provide services to citizens. And so a really big part of the economic pain in Indian country right now is that loss of revenue. Um, And so I know that tribes are starting to um, furlough employees um, and having to cut staff, um, both kind of on the business end and um, on the government side. Um, And there was supposed to be $8 billion in stabilization funds for tribes in the CARES Act. And it's a very long and complicated story that involves um, a lawsuit, a data breach, and a vote of no confidence in Trump's secretary (laughs) of Indian Affairs from almost every tribe in the lower 48. But um, there, it has, after over a month, tribes have seen some of that money, but it hasn't all been dispersed yet. And so... So, um, yeah, the, the economic pains are deep. And um, even the amount of economic support that Congress did pass, um, the Trump administration has managed to um, try to divert and stall.
0: If we cared enough about our Native American sisters and brothers in this country, what would we be doing?
2: Ooh, that's a big question. I mean, I think it goes back to um, sovereignty. And so, you know, when you talk about the framework for Native rights, what it really is about is indigenous self-determination and our tribes being able to preserve our way of life as we see on our lands. And so... Um, You know, I think that looks like restoring tribal lands. Um, You know, there's a lot of land right now that the federal government doesn't necessarily recognize as Indian country that kind of legally is, (laughs) you know, under the legal framework that the United States itself created. Um, So I think looking at restoring that land and then also thinking about, you know, restoring other federal land to tribes, you know, um, the... Uh, only about um, 2% of all land in the United States is still under um, under the control of tribes. Um, and then I think the other really big piece is that where we do still have land intact, our sovereignty on that land is extremely limited. And so... Um, You know, for most crimes, uh, tribes can't prosecute non-native perpetrators in tribal court. Um, For most civil cases, um, you know, we can't prosecute or have, uh, you know, regulatory authority over what's happening on our land, especially if that land is something that's called fee land. And so what's happened, um, I think you know, we have this idea of, like, American progress and that things have gotten better. And we have had some really important laws um, passed in the past 50 years that have strengthened um, tribes and moved Native rights forward. But at the same time, we've also had this sort of slow chipping away of tribal jurisdiction and tribal sovereignty. Um, and so I think that it's time for people to talk about... Um, really restoring that, um, you know, and recognizing that, you know, our our nations predate the creation of the United States. And so our sovereignty isn't something that is given to us by the United States, but is actually inherent. And it's the role of the United States um, to recognize that.
0: Well, I um, really appreciate you making time for us and uh, sharing your uh, perspective and your insights and helping us to understand the impact that this uh, devastating pandemic is having on a community we don't talk enough about. So um, thank you for your work and thank you for your time. And and uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing you when, uh, when we're out and about in the world.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: As always, here's what I'm watching right now. All along, we've been arguing that our government response should be led by science. But this week, Rebecca Jones, architect of Florida's COVID-19 data dashboard, was sacked by Governor Ron DeSantis. She alleges she was fired for refusing to manipulate data. Meanwhile, Florida's infection rate is increasing. But this speaks to an even broader, more troubling trend. How do we make sure to protect science from politics? If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Taki Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.